Welcome everyone interested in this ancient text called the Bible written thousands of years ago and yet they say it's supposed to mean something to us today. To discover what that is, we're going to try and understand what it meant to them back then when it was written. I am your host Jonathan the Dumb Christian and today we are going to explore the entire chapter of John Five. There's a healing, and then there's some controversy, and then there's some drama at the pool with rules and the voice of God. We might get a little colorful. The Bible's about to get very real, so buckle up and welcome to Dumb Christian. John chapter 5. The scene opens on a pool. Inside the city walls of Jerusalem, near a sheep gate where people would come in and out of the city with their flocks for sale, for trade, and there's this pool with five giant columns extending to the top of the city where it would be covered with something stretched like a tarp, a canvas, something to provide shade for those who sit by this pool called Bethesda. Some transcripts say Bethsaida, but it's this pool And archaeology has found that it did exist for a long time. There was speculation. Did John know what he was talking about? Because up until mid-20th century, mid-1900s, they didn't have like a physical site that they could say, oh, yeah, this is what John was talking about. But uh, in the later part of 1900s, they found this pool with five columns extending to put a roof over people who would sit next to it. And part of the pool shared an exterior wall with a temple that's next door to the pagan god Asclepius. Am I saying that right? Hang on, let me look at this real quick. I think it's, yeah, Asclepius. And he was the god of medicine and healing. And so this pool is assumed to have been directly connected with the worship in the temple of Asclepius. And the legend goes that as as you're sitting around the pool, you don't want to mess with the pool, but when the divine uh, god or an angel came and stirred the pool and it started, the water started to move and bubble on its own without anyone helping, the first person to get in the water would be completely healed of any disease, sickness, or ailment that they were suffering from. So this pool was surrounded by the sick and the diseased and people suffering, just waiting for the opportunity. If I can get there when the gods move, I can receive a divine blessing. I can be divinely favored. In this text that John is writing about the situation we're about to walk into, he gives very few details um, about the legend around the pool in his original transcript. In, in the oldest uh, copies that we have of what John had written, there's no mention of a deity stirring up the waters. And that would have been because uh, people uh, from that time would have been very familiar with this urban legend, with the the story, and with the belief that people go there to be healed. But later, even within like a couple hundred years, that um, tradition was lost in culture. And so some of the early church fathers began to add commentary and say, oh, yeah, because they believed there was an angel stirring the waters, 
And then through some of the early church father writings, we see that um, when they say angel, what they meant was a fallen angel, a demon. This is a demonic activity. This is a pagan idea of gods and not actually Yahweh God uh, stirring the waters to heal people. Nonetheless, it is surrounded by people eager to try and get in and achieve for themselves a divine experience. So Jesus walks into this crowd, and this isn't unlike his character. We see him all the time eating with sinners and politicians and tax collectors and prostitutes, and he's hanging out with, you know, the scum of the earth type. And so, you know, there was some speculation like, well, what's Jesus doing at this pagan worship area? Well, he meets people where they're at. And this is just a perfect example of Jesus doing just that. So he goes to where these people are suffering and they are desperate for healing. And while he's there, he sees one man in particular. We don't know his name. He just sees this guy. And later we are going to find out that he's a Jew because of how upset the Jews get with him. And otherwise, if he was a Gentile, the Jews wouldn't care. So there's this connection to imply for us to see that he's a Jew. But aside from his Abrahamic lineage, his connection to Abraham, John doesn't really give us any details as to why Jesus picked this guy out of everyone there who's suffering and wants some sort of healing. But there's something about this guy that makes him stand out and Jesus uh, picks him out of the whole crowd. And, and what John does tell us is that Jesus noticed he had been there for a long time. This Jew has been paralyzed for 38 years. He can't move properly. He can't walk. He can't function in society. People have to come carry him to where he's going to be set up for the day, and then they'll um, bring with them a mat. Maybe it's just like a fabric, a piece of cloth that he would lay on. Sometimes it's some cushions, but they would put him. They'd lay down a mat, and they'd put their, you know, paralyzed friends on these cushions to keep them from the dirt and the rocks. And then they would just leave them there all day and come get them at the end of the day. So Jesus sees this man, and it says he when he saw that he had been there for a long time. Jesus picked this guy out of the crowd. Because sometimes it takes us a long time before we're ready to hear what Jesus has to say to us. Does anyone know what that's like? Yeah. So Jesus picks this guy out of the crowd, directly looks at him, gets his attention. Hey, buddy, over here. What is it that you want? And and the guy responds with, um, <clears throat> I, I, I'm just trying to get into the pool. Every time the pool is stirred, someone else makes it down before me. I don't have someone to help me. He's implying, Jesus, I would like you to help me into the pool. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, I'll do you one better. How about you get up and walk? And take up your mat with you. Pick up your trash. Don't leave any litter behind. Take up your mat and that Taco Bell wrapper left over from the, the meal that somebody just got you. Pick up after yourself. But get up and walk. And instead of waiting for the waters to be stirred, Jesus speaks and stirs something inside of this man. 
and he no longer cares about whether or not the pool is going to get stirred. He believes what Jesus says and he says, okay. And he stands up and he picks up his mat and he walks. This man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. Now, the rest of the story, be sure to go, be sure to read the whole chapter for yourself. God said it the way he wants to say it. He'll always say it better than I can say it. And there is a lot going on in this chapter. We're just going to kind of give like a bird's eye view. We can't unpack all of it. We're going to just kind of like hit the high points, but be sure to go read it for yourself. So this guy takes up his mat and he leaves this pagan Gentile area and he says, okay, well, now that I'm better, I can contribute to society. I'm going to go back to my people, the Jews, and I'm going to participate in in our culture and our society. I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to go interact, whatever. And the religious leaders see this man walking around and they lose their shit. And I'm not talking like they're excited to see this man healed. No, no, no. Instead of being elated about some sort of miraculous power, God showing up, they're actually super pissed off that he's carrying a mat. You see, the day on which Jesus did this healing was the Sabbath. And we've had a couple conversations on Dumb Christian about the Sabbath. And that even in the first chapter of the whole Bible, God sets aside the seventh day of the week to be holy. And he says, I'm the, my people, I'm going to establish a, 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 a cultural norm in my society with my people. That's very different from anyone else in the world. Everyone else is just working every day, every day, every day. God says, my people, we're going to take a day of solemn rest of holy rest because work is good. It's valuable. It gives meaning and purpose to what we're doing. It's us partnering with God in creation. But ultimately God says, we need to make sure that we take one day every single week to stop working and just reflect on the fact that no matter how much work we do, we will not be able to accomplish what God is ultimately doing within creation. He is the source of the crop. He is the sun that shines down on us. He gives the rains. He's the one who causes that seed to break the shell, sprout, and produce 30, 60, 100 fold. God's provision and generosity is the ultimate goal. So let's make sure we take time every week to just focus on the fact that everything we have, all of the good things come from above and that God is the source of everything that we have. We are not the source of what we have because working every day, every hour can start to feel like if I don't do this, I'm not getting what I want out of life. Anyone know what that's like? And so the Jews are furious because this guy is carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And actually what they end up doing is they're getting really pissed at Jesus because Jesus told him to carry his mat. Where do you get off? Who do you think you are telling him to carry his mat? Now, the reason why this is an issue is because when God first made it a commandment after Israel's freed from Egypt, so we're talking like Exodus, Leviticus, somewhere in there, God gives a command, keep the Sabbath holy, don't work on the Sabbath, because there are serious consequences. Um, if you go back to listen to one of our very first episodes, you'll um, death for picking up sticks or something like that. Um, sticks and stones to death. That's what it's called. Um, and we talk about 
how serious it is that we keep the Sabbath day holy, that we really make sure we take time to remember we aren't the source of our lives. God is. And if if we fail to do that, the consequence um, originally was you're going to get stoned to death. It's how serious this was. Well, um, remember we talked about in, in John chapter 3 that about 400 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, the religious leaders in Israel are like, hey, we, got, we need to make sure that we don't disobey God anymore. We need to really protect ourselves. So what we're going to do is we're going to add all these extra laws and rules and regulations to the ones that God gave us to make sure we don't accidentally break any of the laws that God gave us. And one of the ones that they added a lot of rules and regulations to was keep the Sabbath day holy. And the way that they added to this was God said, don't work. And and really, God only gave a few kind of like conditions as to what that meant, right? Don't build, don't make fire. Um, and there's just a very few things that God, but he basically he's saying, if it's work for you, don't do it. So what the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the religious leaders of, of the day did is they said, we're going to make a list of things that constitute as work. So nobody accidentally breaks the commandment. Don't work on the Sabbath. It's this almost this ironic twist that the Sabbath, which was set aside to remember God, is being used to honor and glorify man's ability to make and keep commandments and traditions. And part of these additional rules and regulations included things like you could only walk a couple miles. You can't make mud because bricks are made out of mud. So if you make mud, that implies you're going to start working. And that's interesting because Jesus also performs a miracle later. I don't know for sure if it's in John or if it's in one of the other gospels, but Jesus performs a miracle of healing a blind man by making mud on the Sabbath. That also gets him in some hot water with the Jews of that day. But here, what he's doing is Jesus told this man to pick up his mat and walk. One of the laws and regulations that they added was you can't transport goods. Well, this is a mat that would have been sold and bought in the marketplace. So if you're transporting something that could be bought or sold, you're working. So he gets in trouble for carrying his mat on the Sabbath, which comes back around. They say, what are you doing? And, and the, the man who was healed says, I, I don't know. Look, I don't know. I was sitting at the pool and all I know is this guy came up to me, told me to take up my mat and walk. He healed me. This guy who healed me told me to carry my mat. So that's what I'm doing. And they said, who told you that? No one in their right mind, no good Jew would tell you to take up your mat and walk. Who was it? And then he pauses for a moment. He thinks, oh, damn. I didn't even think to ask his name. So he goes back to wherever he could find Jesus asking, hey, have you guys seen the guy who healed me? I'm trying to get his name. They said, oh, yeah, I think he's over there. He finds Jesus, says, hey, I didn't even think to ask your name. Who are you? And, and he responds with Christ. Jesus Christ. Shaken, not stirred. Oh, okay. And, and then they're having this conversation and Jesus says, how does it feel? Your legs? How does it feel to walk and be healthy and whole? It's pretty sweet, right? Yeah. Now go and stop sinning so that nothing worse happens to you. There's a lot 
in what Jesus says to this guy right here, but we're going to put a pin in it and come back to it because it's actually going to tie the whole story together. He says, great. I love that you're loving life, living it to the fullest go and sin no more. So the guy takes off, heads back to the religious leaders, still carrying his mat. You guys, I figured out who it was. It was Christ, Jesus Christ. And he's the one who healed me. And they said, Oh, that's it. We're going to put an end to this guy once and for all. So they get their torches and their pitchforks and they start charging into the city square, wherever Jesus was. And they surround him and they demand an explanation. Where do you get off telling this person to break the Sabbath? You are breaking the commandment of God. Now, keep in mind, um, Jesus simply wasn't honoring their addition to God's command. And, you know, and it kind of reminds me of in Genesis chapter three, when Eve is being tempted to eat the fruit, she, um, she says, we can't eat the fruit, but we also can't even touch the fruit or we'll die. And, and in that moment, it sets the precedent that we see again, reflective here that adding phrasing and words and technicalities and conditions to what God said actually sets his people up for failure. sets them up to completely misunderstand God, his purpose, and his his intention. And that's exactly what's happening here. And they come irate that Jesus is, in their eyes, breaking the Sabbath. You are dishonoring God. You are disobeying our God. And Jesus says, hold your horses. I'm actually not doing anything that I haven't first seen our God, the Father, my Father, do. Everything I'm doing, I learned from the Father, who's actually my Father. I'm only doing what God would do. Okay. All right, Jesus, I see you. And what he says here is this very interesting relational dynamic that Jesus poses to the Jews. He says, God is my father. And the word he's using here is God is my biological father. It's not like he's my father. He is my dad. In our current modern perspective, we want to hear Jesus say the words, I am God. But what we need to understand is the Jewish ears, when they hear, I am God's son, he is my father. We have perfect right relationship. I come from him. He and I are one. What they're hearing is, I am God in in their religious language. And this, I mean, they're already pissed off because... They are acute. They think he's breaking the Sabbath. He, Jesus is breaking their meticulously designed and constructed system that will perfectly keep them from ever breaking God's commands again. The, and Jesus is really screwing up their efforts to achieve divine favor. Hmm. Now that's interesting. Because right here, Jesus then begins to compare them to the people waiting at the pool of Bethesda. All you guys want to do is try and earn your way into heaven. You've created this system to try and convince God that you're good enough to try and earn for yourselves and achieve divine favor on your own merit. 
You, you think you study the scriptures, you know the stories, you repeat the stories, you memorize the verses, you teach the stories every Sabbath. But you're missing the point because if you really believed in the scriptures, if you, if you really understood what they were saying, you would be able to interpret and understand that what they're doing is all the whole Bible, everything you're reading is pointing to Jesus, pointing to me. I'm the one that all of scripture is talking about. I am the Messiah. I am from God. I am God. And the way that you approach scripture, the way that you approach God is with a heart and an attitude to honor and glorify everyone who can achieve for themselves righteousness and purity. Now, don't get me wrong. And scripture tells us this. Jesus tells us this. Working is good. It is. It gives us meaning. It has purpose for us. We are designed, created to partner with God to do the work of creation. But ultimately, it's not from us. And so Jesus is saying, look, everything that you've everything that's written that you read and rely upon to be your source for your faith in God is actually trying to show you that you can't accomplish or achieve divine favor. Look at all the ways you fail every step of the turn, even with all these additional rules and regulations that you burden on top, that you bear, uh, that you burden pile on top of other people. It's not helpful. It's actually just setting you up for greater failure because God's ultimate plan, his ultimate purpose was to send me, God the Son, to bestow upon you divine favor, not because you've earned it, not because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, not because you were good enough, not because you got to the pool first, not because you convinced God you're better than everyone else, but because his divine favor is blessed, is bestowed upon you out of grace. So here at Dumb Christian, we define sin as whenever the good that we choose for ourselves is different than the good that God would choose for us. And grace is undeserved, unfair favor. It's God's favor. It's the divine favor upon you, not because you've earned it, but in fact, because you don't deserve it. So by definition, if you deserve it, you can't get this divine favor. It only comes through acknowledging I can't achieve it on my own and believing it comes through the grace of Jesus Christ. This is him setting the stage to un, to unravel the, 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 the tapestry that has been woven through the Old Testament to paint this picture that, look, all of these ways are how you are right and righteous with God, but you can't do it. You want to have a right relationship with God, divine favor. It only comes through the grace of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one God sends, who is in fact his son, God himself. In the end... Jesus holds up a mirror to this group of religious leaders who are, first of all, you know, uh, disgusted that this Jew who would go lay among Gentiles at a pagan temple, hoping that this pagan divinity would heal him, is now walking miraculously healed. And they, I mean, it's just layers and layers of disgust and, and, uh, like, oh my goodness, who, who, who do you think you are? to this man who was healed, but also to Jesus. And Jesus holds up the mirror and says, you're no 
better than everyone who's just trying to make for themselves their own future, who's trying to heal themselves, who's trying to save themselves because you've created this checklist, you've created this system where you think if you can follow all these extra rules and regulations, you're going to be any better off. It's not true. In fact, you're doing exactly what they're doing because the person who makes it into the pool is only healed at the expense of everyone else, causing everyone else to continue to suffer. And all you're doing is when you finally honor that person who comes in their own glory and says, look what I've done, it's actually causing despair, hopelessness, and shame on everyone else who can't do what you're pretending you've been able to do. Jesus says, I'm here to give life healing and wholeness, not because you've earned it, but because my grace is enough. And then let's come back to that, that point where Jesus tells the man, now stop sinning so that nothing worse may happen to you. What could be worse than having been paralyzed for 38 years? The implication is a spiritual punish, something spiritually devastating maybe like eternal separation from God. And the phrase here, sin no more, could be considered and taken as like a real generic idea. Stop sinning. Don't do bad things. But in the context of what's happening here, the story that's taking place is stop sitting by the pools where you think you're going to find divine favor and stop living by the rules that you think will make you righteous before God. Because what happens when you try to create for yourself your destiny and you try to save yourself, heal yourself, make yourself right before God, you are creating the state in which you will live for eternity. A a state of your effort. And sometimes it takes 38 years being paralyzed to discover Everything I make myself just keeps falling apart. It just results in more paralysis, more suffering, more despair, more hopelessness. And Jesus is saying, look, stop trying to do this for yourself. Stop trying to be righteous. Stop trying to, to, to achieve divine favor for yourself. God is freely giving it. God wants to pour it out. He wants to lavish it upon you abundantly through the grace of his Messiah, Jesus Christ. So stop trying to create righteousness, holiness, healing, health, life for yourself, because it's just going to result in an eternity dependent on your ability to create life after death spiritual joy, eternity. And that's not going to be, and that's not going to work out the way any of us would hope it would. And yet there are still people who lay by the poolside waiting for the water to be stirred. And there are still those people who have dedicated their lives to creating and enforcing those man-made traditions about keeping the Sabbath. 
But that is John chapter 5, Jesus meeting a man at the pool of Bethesda and the chaos that ensues after. I have been your host, Jonathan the Dumb Christian. I love you guys. Next time. Okay, that there there's a lot there. So please, I can't say it again. I can't say it enough. Oh, wait, I can say it again. I am going to say it again. I can't say it enough. Please go read John chapter 5 for yourself. There's a lot that Jesus says. There's a lot of interaction between the Jewish community and Jesus because of this kind of thing that blew up. Uh, so investigate. Find out what's going on there. There's a lot more than just what I scratched the surface of. Be sure to check us out on YouTube. There's some exclusive content on there. Dumb Christian Thoughts, Dancing with Jesus, and Dumb Christian Dad Jokes. Be sure to subscribe, like, ring that bell. Here comes the butler. Shoe showing for the Kofna. I love you guys. I'll catch you later. Oh, 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 oh